series now as a church family through the entire New Testament, looking at the first and last chapter of every letter to see how it begins and how it ends, realizing for most of us that's how we recall things. Uh, We remember how things start. We remember how they finished. And sometimes we're a little bit fuzzy in the middle. But if we can hold on to those two things, uh, it helps us also interpret what is uh, in the middle when we can remember those things. And so we started with Matthew and Mark, and today we're going to turn to Luke, but it's uh, in a few weeks where it's actually the gospel writer John who summarizes the whole New Testament by talking about the grace and the truth that has come to us in Jesus Christ, that the law was given through Moses, but that grace and truth have come in their fullest expression through Jesus and in that, those two words, he's actually borrowing from the Old Testament that often talked about the steadfast love and the faithfulness of our God. And so that the message that we should, uh, one of the things that we should take from wherever we read in our Bibles is that God is full of steadfast love and faithfulness, that he keeps the promises that he makes, that he is worthy of our trust to worship him and to follow after him. And so today we're looking at uh, how we see that in Luke chapter 1. So if you haven't already, I invite you to turn to Luke chapter 1, uh, where we'll read. You'll notice immediately the pace is very, very different than Mark. Uh, with Mark, there was an urgency uh, to quickly tell us story after story. And so if you were talking to Mark in a conversation, you might almost say, Mark, take a breath. Like, Slow down. I'm, I'm trying to keep up. And Luke is like a friend asking you to go on a long walk and he's not in a hurry he wants to really make sure that you hear what needs to be heard that you have time to process it and so it's a slower and longer telling of the story of Jesus Luke chapter 1 inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready 
the Lord, a people prepared. And Zacharias said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he'd seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among the people." In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I'm a virgin? And the angel said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son. For this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord shall come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. And he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. And now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son, and her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. 
And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zachariah after his father. But his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And when they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted him to be called, and he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered, and immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors and all the things that were talked through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord, God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness, and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in the spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. And that'll conclude our reading. Right? It, it feels like a sermon in and of itself uh, as he slowly takes the time to tell us uh, the story and the backstory of the coming of our Savior. But one of the first points that it's helpful for us to see in this chapter is that Luke is writing this to somebody else. And he's aware that this person named Theophilus has been hearing several different things about Jesus. And I don't know about you, but one phrase that I feel like I've heard repeated many, many times in the last two years alone is, you just don't know who to believe. Has anybody said that to you? <laughs> or have you said that out loud yourself in processing different information about the news? It is just hard to know who to believe. Well, as Luke is writing this, he's very aware that people are saying different things about Jesus and making uh, different claims. And someone like Theophilus who's hearing this and wondering how is he supposed to make sense of it and how is he supposed to know what he can consider trustworthy and what he might consider false, Luke introduces the gospel by saying, so I'm going to take it upon myself, having heard all of these different things, to try to put together an orderly account so that you, Theophilus, might have greater certainty with the things that you believe. So this whole gospel is a persuasive argument. Luke realizes that he is seeking to persuade somebody who's hearing a variety of things about Jesus, that there are things that he can know for certain. And so he needs information. Uh, he needs to be able to verify certain things that are said. But the burden of Luke is to persuade 
Theophilus of the truth of the gospel. Now, this is central for all of us in our Christian faith. Uh, in 1 Peter, it says that all of us as Christians are supposed to be ready to give an answer for the hope that is within us. So that if anybody were to come to us and say, why do you believe in Jesus? We should be able to say something. And sometimes we might only have 90 seconds to sort of give a short version of why we believe in Jesus. And sometimes we have a little bit more time where we can explain it. But every one of us should be able to communicate persuasively why it is that we believe the gospel story is true. And that's actually part of the newness of the new covenant that everybody in the new covenant is somebody who, through an experience of a new birth, comes to believe in Jesus for themselves. So that nobody is a Christian by their birth. Uh, if you were in the old covenant, born to Jewish parents, you were Jewish. Uh, it was a part of your ethnic and national identity. But in the new covenant, is this understanding that wherever you were born and to whomever you were born, you yourself have to come to a place of conviction that this is what you believe, that this is the way that you now follow. This is the Messiah that you will seek after. And so no Christian tries to make another person a Christian. <laughs> we don't force people into the faith. Now, in 2,000 years of church history, we have a mixed record on how well we do that. But long before uh, our own country's understanding of the separation of church and state, there were many Christian movements who sought to separate the church and the state in this way to say, those who are Christians should become Christians because they are persuaded, not coerced. Because they believe for themselves, not because somebody else believes for them. Because if we make other people Christians or simply tell them they're Christians by where or how they were born, then what we have is a lot of people who are Christian in name but not in substance. Christians who think they belong into the kingdom of God, but they, they don't themselves actually ever own their faith and know why they believe what they believe. And so Luke is not uh, sort of asserting to Theophilus this authority like hey uh, he's a pretty smart guy uh, he could pull his credentials and say uh, this is why you should just accept what I say but Luke doesn't do that Luke is looking uh, and loving Theophilus to say I'm going to tell you the story and I'm going to give you reasons why you should believe it for yourself but all of us have to come to that place where we are persuaded that it's true because if it's what other people believe for us, eventually we'll walk away from it. But if it becomes something that we believe from the inside out, that we are persuaded that this is what is right and true, then we'll commit to follow after it. But Luke is also uh, in his desire, not just for himself to be persuaded, but as he's engaging other people, it's a good thing for us to uh, consider how well prepared we are to give an answer for the hope that is within us. What are the questions that we have that need to be answered? And then as we meet and encounter new people, what are the questions they have about our faith that we need to keep on thinking about and answering? 
This is a few uh, decades after the events take place. And Luke is not worn out to keep on seeking to persuade other people. And he doesn't simply point back to something that had already been said before. He accepts the responsibility himself to put together an account, to make an argument that Theophilus and then all of us would consider for why we believe what we believe. And so our faith is not in contradiction to our using our mind and our reason. Uh, Luke is engaging his mind to put this all together in an orderly way, thinking about why he's starting here and why he moves to there so that he can help somebody else consider it. Now, in our faith, we realize nothing can ever be proved to us 100% in the same way, and so there's always some aspect where we come to a posture of believing things by faith like we do with everything in history. Um, uh, there are plenty of places on this earth that none of us have ever been to, but we all believe are there <laughs> because we've heard from other people uh, that they've been there. There's plenty of people in the past that we believe that really lived that none of us have met because, again, we've heard over time from enough people that persuades us that it's true. And so we all have faith in something, <laughs> But for that faith to continue and for that faith to be persuasive for other people, that faith needs to have arguments and reasons behind it. And that's why Luke is taking his time uh, to explain this. And we need to do the same. Even those of us, and sometimes actually especially those of us who've grown up in a Christian environment and we've heard the stories uh, over and over again, we realize that we might just be familiar with the stories, but we actually need to become persuaded by them. We need to become convinced of them as true. When we've had no exposure to it at all, then we're, we're making that judgment at the same time. As we're listening to it, we're trying to decide if it's true or not. If we've grown up in it, and people around us have been constantly telling us it's true, uh, that sometimes is a bigger challenge for us to say uh, those people were all well-meaning, uh, there was a, a goodness as they were seeking to pass down their faith, but I need to wrestle with this for myself. I need to decide if from the inside out this is what I believe and a way of life that I follow. And this is Luke writing to Theophilus, this argument trying to get him uh, to see that there's reasons for the faith that we have. So we have a persuasive argument. And then also, one of, the, one of the amazing things throughout this chapter is the pervasive joy that's in this chapter. The angel Gabriel comes to Zechariah and says, I bring you great news that's gonna bring a lot of rejoicing to you. It's good news. And then when Mary gets the announcement and then comes to Elizabeth and they meet one another and Elizabeth being pregnant is confirmation to Mary of everything she's just heard. And then it says that the baby in Elizabeth's womb leaps for joy. And then that causes Elizabeth to rejoice that she has this opportunity to meet Mary. And then that causes Mary to start singing uh, and her own song and then eventually when John is born, Zechariah sings a song of praise. We'd look at this chapter and just say, there's a ton of 
joy and worship in this chapter. The good news that has come brings about this response of gratitude and thankfulness for what the message is. And so there again, when we think about whether or not we would be able to give an answer for the hope that is within us, that very same verse kind of challenges us on this second point. Is there a pervasive joy in our lives that causes people to wonder where it comes from? Because most of us, when we, if we see somebody just laughing out loud, we want to know what the joke was that they saw or what video it is that they're gathered around watching it. And to hear, what is it that's making you laugh? What is it that's bringing you joy? And as Luke is telling this story, and the, the angel himself has this sort of excitement and anticipation to spread this news, and then Elizabeth has this joy, and the baby in her womb has this joy, uh, it's a, a good test for us to say, how much is the gospel message still bringing me joy? Because it should be. It's good news of great joy for all people. And if we've become so familiar with it and we so expect it, we feel like we sort of know what the punchline is and so that it's not moving us or stirring us as much, uh, we should feel challenged in that. To say, Lord, I, I want to experience the joy again of my salvation. We actually have a prayer in the Old Testament where David, after, even though he knew God and followed after him and committed incredible sin, knew he was guilty, felt convicted of that sin. And so part of his prayer of repentance in Psalm 51 was, Lord, would you restore to me the joy of my salvation? Because he recognizes part of why he got off on the wrong track and started pursuing other things that he shouldn't is because his life had gone spiritually dry. He wasn't rejoicing in the goodness of God's love for him. And because he wasn't rejoicing in that, he got tempted by other things. They, they demanded his time and his attention to say, this is where maybe new joy will come from. And so one of the best ways for us to fight ongoing temptation or sin is to pursue joy and satisfaction in what we have. And when we get joy from such simple things, uh, last Sunday uh, after service, we drove down to Cincinnati uh, to watch the Super Bowl in Cincinnati. And uh, my mom enjoys football and my aunt uh, and my siblings. And we went last year when Cincinnati wasn't in the Super Bowl. And so then they said, oh, Cincinnati, you guys have to come this year uh, because now we're in it. And the whole city like shut down. Like nobody had school the next day and most people took work off the next day. Um, but for me, it was fun just to see the joy in my kids of the anticipation of grandma's house uh, and Gagi's house. And then they would talk about different things that they like about it and everybody that they saw. Uh, but one of the things that uh, my middle son, Joshua, just, he could already smell the waffle cookies that my mom regularly makes when they come over. And so then eventually said, I just love going to grandma's house because there's always those waffle cookies. And you could see the sense of joy and anticipation that he had and being able to go to a place that he loved. We all have things like that in simple ways that bring us joy. And so the announcement of the good news to the world 
is that we have a loving Heavenly Father who knows what all of our deepest longings are. He knows our pain points and our hurts. And it's not that we will never go through sorrow and we'll never go through grief, but he knows how to bring us joy. In, in this brief chapter, you have an older couple who thinks their days are long behind them. And the things that they had longed for and hoped for in a family will just never be able to be achieved. And then you have Mary who's on the different end of the spectrum. She's very, very young, has most of the future in front of her. The angel comes to both of them to tell them that something unexpected is going to happen. That it's not a limitation that you're too old. It's not a limitation that you're too young. It's not a limitation that you have this sort of position of authority like Zachariah did in the priesthood. And it's not a limitation that you're from this small town called Nazareth in a region of Galilee. And not many people know who you are. That God is able to see into each of those experiences and context to know what his children need and to know how to bring them joy. And he's going to do that for each and every one of us. And so pervasive joy is not thinking that uh, every day is going to go well and that we have to just smile every day and fake it till you make it kind of a thing. But it's becoming absolutely persuaded that our God is able to turn our mourning into dancing. He's able to turn our sorrow into joy. Our times of grief eventually will become reasons of celebration. And as we learn how he does that and did that in other people's lives, we can go forward in our days with that sense of confidence that he knows what he's doing. And so sometimes we sing the song that earth has no sorrow that heaven can't cure or heal. And that's, if we believe that as Christians, it should be evident as we go about our days to say, I know this is a hard day. I know this is a hard boss. I know this is a difficult situation, but I don't believe there's anything we're going through that our good and kind and loving Heavenly Father can't ultimately guide us through. And he promises that at the end of this journey is joy eternal. And when we believe that, that affects the joy that we have in our daily experience. It's not that everything around us makes us happy or everything around us is a source of joy, but we don't get knocked off as much by the grief and the sorrow and the brokenness around us when we believe that all of those things will be temporary, but everything that's good and right will be eternal that the challenges and the suffering that we experience are for a time, but the gifts and the grace that he gives to us are forever. That should enable us to experience joy. And in that sense of joy, what we ultimately see uh, in this chapter is a patient hope. If we are persuaded that God's purposes for us are good, and that he knows how to turn our sorrow into joy, that gives us patience to endure all the things that we might be challenged with. When we read about Zachariah and Elizabeth, and Luke goes out of his way to say they were a great <laughs> couple, 
And they lived faithfully according to their understanding of God. But for a long period of time, they had prayers that they were praying that maybe even not a lot of people knew about that were not being answered and were not being fulfilled. And we read that. It's meant to encourage us to say, is there something or someone you've been praying for for a long time and you feel like you're growing weary (laughs) in praying? You're just not sure the answer's going to come. To look back and in hearing, again, how God has provided for other people and to say, you can learn to be patient too. God can give you what you need for today, and even if you don't see everything fulfilled today, you can trust he's continuing to work for you. Part of Mary's song is to acknowledge not just how she's encountering this, but what this all means about her people and her nation. My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, she says, because God has looked on the humble estate of his servant, but she acknowledges then that his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. That what God is doing is actually fulfilling the promises made a long time ago. And so her song ends in verse 55 by saying, he's doing all of this in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. The children of Israel had learned how to be patient over a long period of time. That if it didn't all happen in Abraham's day, God was still fulfilling it through other people. And if the promise made to David that someone would rule on his throne forever wasn't fully fulfilled in Solomon, it was still going to happen. And so if we feel ourselves in that tension of that experience of saying, I have been persuaded, I believe God is true and I'm fighting for joy, Is it giving us what we need to be patient in our current experiences of suffering? When things that we're still wondering to know, how will they be fulfilled? What will be the end of the road? Will we even see the end of the things that we're longing for? As Luke is telling us this story, he's trying to persuade us that we can be hopeful, which is, again, not naive. (laughs) Luke doesn't hide uh, any of the challenges that come for both John and Jesus around whom so much of this joy is being expressed and the goodness of what God is doing there are going to be hard days ahead for them John is going to suffer because of what he's called to do Jesus is going to suffer for what he's called to do but it's later in Hebrews chapter 12 where the writer says that Jesus was willing to do all of that And he had joy through all of that for for what was set before him. It says he endured the cross for the joy that was set before him. And if you or I were to say, well, what is possible that could give us a sense of patience and joy in the midst of struggle and suffering and waiting for something good to happen? And the answer of the New Testament is love. Because God loves us and his purposes for us are to bring us into a loving relationship with him, our Savior had joy and patience even in his suffering because he knew 
but that would ultimately bring us back into a relationship with him. And love for other people is the only thing that can cause us to make those willing sacrifices, experience those long waits to be reunited again. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the wisdom of your children. We thank you that for the gospel writer Luke, that he loved you with all of his mind and sought when he had the opportunity to address Theophilus, to take the time to record the stories that surrounded your birth and your life in a desire to persuade him and each and every one of us that you are good, that you know how to lift up our broken hearts. You know how to give us joy in exchange for our sorrow, that you know how to keep holding out for us the hope that we all need to patiently endure the trials and the tribulations that we face. And so, Father, we pray that you would help us in our walk to be prepared to give an answer for the hope that is within us, that we wouldn't wait for uh, some distant time to begin celebrating or worshiping you, but that we would already be found faithful in trusting you in saying your will be done and not ours and being open and available to those around us that they would see our love for them and our willingness to serve them out of the joy that you have put inside of us. Father, would you please help us to all see that you are so much greater and and more worthy of our effort and our love than all the lesser joys that constantly are around us and tempt us. Help us to seek our full and lasting fulfillment in you and you alone. We pray in Jesus' name.